Good evening. Thanks for the fly, whoever put that up here. Appreciate that. Was that Braxton? Braxton, I'll give you your fly back here when we get done. I do want to introduce you to some new members, Jacob and Leah Baeza. If you would stand, please. There they are. Leah was baptized, as Rob said, this afternoon at 4 o'clock. Thank you guys so much for being here. If you don't know the relation, uh, Jacob is Zinni's brother, and uh, he's been hired at Wiley to coach. And uh, so they're going to be here and be with us. And Leah, I appreciate your decision to put on Christ in baptism this afternoon. What a wonderful thing, and we rejoice with you. Look forward to getting you guys involved and being a part of our family here. Uh, We have the Shining Stars up. Uh, That'll be later, sorry. We are uh, still in the midst of our series, uh, Summer School, and we are looking at, you know, getting back to basics on some things. And actually, I think we have the wrong uh, title in the bulletin. Uh, We are going to look at that topic next week. You know whose fault that is? It's all mine. I completely messed up on that one, so don't blame anybody but me. But this morning or this evening, I want us to look at from old to new. And what brought this sermon about was a conversation that I had with my father not long ago. And we were talking, and he's, he would brought up some spiritual matters, as he does quite often, and, and it's good discussion. And one of the things he said to me is, he goes, you know, it seems like that God was somewhat harsher in the Old Testament. And so we discussed that for a little while, and the question came about, so why don't we stone people anymore today? You know, certain offenses that were subject to stoning in the Old Testament, we don't do that today in the New Testament. And for some of us, we can answer that question very easily, but I think there are some people you know, outside of the realm of Christendom that, that wonder about that. You know, why don't we punish people by those means anymore, you know, certain sins were punishable by death by stoning. Why don't we do that anymore? And so it's an understanding of the nature of God's kingdom, really. Some people look at it and say, well, God was harsher in the Old Testament, but he mellowed out in the New Testament. We see the God of judgment and punishment in the Old Testament, but we find a God of grace in the New Testament. But do you realize that God is the same all the way through both Testaments? We see the grace of God in the Old Testament. Noah found grace or favor in the sight of God. We see the grace of God on full display in the way that he dealt with the Israelites, giving them second chance after second chance. You go over the New Testament, you see the wrath of God, don't you? Ananias and Sapphira struck dead immediately for their sin. And so God has not changed, but what has changed is the nature of his kingdom. Notice with me what is written about God in Psalm 103, starting in verse 8. It says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. God is a balanced God throughout the Bible. He is unchanging. The word is immutable, oftentimes it's used. We see 
the God of grace in the Old Testament as well as the New, and we see a God of wrath in the Old Testament as well as the New. God is not mellowed out. He has not taken a softer stance on sin now that we are under the New Covenant. In Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, it reads, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. That seems rather straightforward and simple, right? But understand what is going on at the time of this writing. As Malachi is prophesying, the people are not much different than they are today. People were living in open rebellion before God. They were, they were immersed in uh, idolatry. The priests were offering blemished animals. They were very ritualistic, but their heart wasn't engaged. This was a defiant people. And they wondered why God had not fulfilled his promise. Well, because God wasn't the one who had changed. They were the ones who had changed. But then in some ways, they were the way they've always been, right? Disobedience has marked God's people from the very beginning. And they're trying to blame God when God is not the one to blame. God has not changed. God is still ready and willing to fulfill his promise to the people of Israel, but they were rebelling. They were the ones that had changed. A.W. Pink once said, God cannot change for the better, for he is already perfect, and being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. God doesn't grow older. He doesn't gain new powers and then lose some old ones. He does not grow wiser, for he already knows all things. He does not become stronger. He is already omnipotent, powerful to the infinite degree. His nature does not change. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament, and so on. His love and compassion can be seen in the way that he dealt with the Israelite people. It can be seen in his dialogue with Abraham. If you remember when Abraham pleaded for the city of Sodom and said, God, would you not destroy it if there were 50 righteous people found there? And God promised that he wouldn't. In fact, it was whittled down to 10. If only 10 righteous people were found there, God said he would not destroy the city. God's truth does not change either. Sometimes we say things that we don't mean, or we make promises that we can't keep. Sometimes we go back on our word, but not God. God is consistent. He is the same always. Psalm 119, verses 89 and 90 states, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth, and it stands. God's standards do not change either. You know, there are things that our culture, that our society is confused about. We wonder what is right, what is wrong. Some things that are actually evil in the sight of God, our culture calls good and vice versa, right? God is not confused on these issues. Some of these issues have been turned into political issues, but before they were political issues, they were biblical issues. God is not confused about same-sex marriage or abortion or any of those things. He has already made a ruling on those. And I think sometimes we put so much stock into what another says, yet we don't go to God's word to see what he says about it. Where does God stand? That's the most important thing. His standard hasn't changed. I think the Hebrew writer said it well when he stated, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. God, his son, spirit, they have not changed. So what has changed? I mean, something obviously has changed, right? We don't stone people today like they did in the Old Testament. There are things that are different today under the New Covenant. So what has changed? If God hasn't changed, what has? Well, his kingdom has changed. 
there has been a change in kingdoms. You see, in the Old Testament, under the old law, there was a physical kingdom. Everything was physical in nature. There was no separation of church and state, if you will. God executed His will through the government, if you want to put it that way. And so it was purely a physical kingdom. And God operated within that realm. Even when the Israelite people were stubborn and hard-hearted about having a, a physical king to be like the nations around them, God finally relented. It was a bad idea, as you know. But God finally gave them what they asked for. But even then, it was still a physical kingdom. It was physical in nature. What happened was that the people could follow the letter of the law and yet not understand or follow the spirit of it. So you could stay away from certain offenses, but still not be holy or spiritual. I mean, think about it. We know people in our daily lives that are not Christians. They don't come to church, but they've never killed anyone. Just because they have avoided killing someone doesn't mean that they are any holier than anyone else, right? And so we have this purely physical kingdom, and what happened was the people were ritualistic. They were rote and routine about things, and God wanted it written on their hearts. Notice Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The heart was the issue. God wanted their hearts, which is precisely why Jesus came. You notice how many times that Jesus reiterates the old law, but just in different terms? You know, Jesus came to write it on their hearts. This wasn't about something mechanical and personal, but that's what God's people had made it. Jesus came to open the doors for all. Not just one nation, but all nations, all tribes, all tongues could form the early church. Jesus' kingdom was very different. It was not a physical kingdom by nature. In fact, it was quite the opposite. It was a spiritual kingdom. He even says, my kingdom is not of this world. You see, many of the people living in that day and age thought that they would get a physical kingdom, that the Messiah would be a physical deliverer, much like Moses. In fact, some may have thought it was going to be Moses. But Jesus came to bring something very different. They thought that the Messiah would come and, and rule with an iron fist and overthrow the Roman government and, and, and make their, their well-being peaceful and prosperous. Well, Jesus came to rescue people, but not in a physical sense. As you know, he came to rescue them in a spiritual sense. And we see this play out several times. I mean, you take, for instance, when the people asked about paying taxes to Caesar. And Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Basically saying, pay your taxes, that's fine. None of that stuff matters anyway. This is a spiritual kingdom. So don't put all the emphasis on the things that are physical, but rather on the things that will last in eternity. Christ's earliest followers would live, for the most part, in political regimes that were, that were rather hostile towards them. But they were encouraged to continue to keep the faith and to live as salt and light representing Christ wherever they went. Today, 
God no longer executes his will through the government like we see in the Old Testament or under the old law. You know, civil government is a minister of God for the good of the people. Paul approaches this in Romans 12 and 13. What this means is that God has ordained and laid down basic functions that the government is to perform. For instance, it is the state's responsibility to protect the good and punish the wicked. This charge has been explicitly given to the government and not to the individual Christian. And we know this because of what is written in Romans chapter 12. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is rendered, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Individuals are not to get involved in personal revenge. Vengeance belongs to God. That is his business. He will punish evil. And one of the means by which he punishes evil is through civil government. This is spelled out by Paul in Romans 13, verses 1 through 4. Every Christian should obey the government that he is under, so long as the government doesn't impose things that are in violation of what God's will is. In that case, you're under no obligation to follow something that is in direct contradiction to what God has prescribed. But to refuse to obey the government is a sin against God. And so when Jesus says, obey your leaders, Render under Caesar what is Caesar's. When we read, submit to your leaders. These are all things that are designed because God said, I am going to execute my will, at least in part, through civil government. Now, unfortunately, not all of our leaders understand that, right? Don't we wish that all of our leaders understood that they were a minister of God or that civil government was instituted by God? Unfortunately, they do not, and we see a lot of, of you know, strife, a lot of turmoil because of that. And as we said, we are not under obligation to obey a leader that, um, that imposes things that are against the will of God. You obey God first and foremost. But there is a set of instructions for individual Christians as seen in Romans chapter 12 and a different set of instructions as seen in Romans chapter 13. These are two different spheres. You see, while the nation Israel was obligated to pursue criminal matters under the Old Testament or under the old law, today God authorizes the civil authorities in the administration of justice. The state is to punish evildoers, and this punishment is intended to be carried out by due process of the law, not by the capriciousness of the ruler. This is reflected in the statement where Paul writes that the ruler is a minister of God, an avenger of wrath to him that does evil. He carries out the punishment as a minister of God's wrath. Christians have no authority to judge those outside of church. But many of the sins that we see punishable by death under the old law are now sins that we deal with in a church setting. You know, Paul approached some of these things, when he talked about spiritual discipline, he talked about church discipline, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, we don't take people out and stone them, but there is a process that we are to adhere to, to discipline those who are not, who are not following God's will, who are living in open rebellion. 
1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 9, it reads, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with the judging of outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. In other words, we don't have the right to take a life today. That's not something that's within our jurisdiction. But the church does have the responsibility to discipline those who persist in their sins. We don't see this carried out very often. And when we do, it's often carried out erroneously. Because so many times it's about trimming the fat or kicking somebody to the curb. But if you read on in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's not talking about that at all. He's talking about disciplining the immoral brother so that hopefully they will see what they are missing by being ousted from the fellowship of God and want to come back and be a part of it again. That they will repent, that they will turn around. Now these are extreme situations, obviously. But when church discipline is carried out effectively, it is done out of love hoping that the one who has sinned will come back. So from the Old to the New Testament, from a physical to a spiritual kingdom, God has always remained the same. What has changed is the nature of his kingdom. But we have to understand that the change in the nature of his kingdom does not mean a change in his character. I think the concept of grace kind of fools us into thinking that God has mellowed out on sin and that maybe he doesn't take it as seriously. But one thing we have to understand is that justice delayed is not justice denied. I mean, there will be a day when the sheep and the goats will be separated. Jesus will come back. He will judge the living and the dead. But until that time, all of us, even those who are living in open rebellion to God, are not struck dead immediately but allowed to carry on. Someday, though, justice will be enacted. Divine retribution will come. But justice delayed is not justice denied. God's character hasn't changed. His stance on sin hasn't changed. It's just the nature of the kingdom has. I want you to look closely at Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 18. I love what this says here. Beginning in verse 18 of Hebrews 12, it reads, for you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and a whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. 
This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You ever notice that the two mountains here are representative of the two covenants? I mean, Sinai had a message. And the message at Mount Sinai was stand back. Don't touch. You can't come near. But Zion, the message was what? Come. You're invited. Come close. You see, these mountains are representative of the two covenants. Notice what the Hebrew writer states, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Christ died outside the city walls of Zion. You realize that, right? Fulfilling prophecies that salvation would come from Zion. Zion represents the opening of heaven. Sinai was closed to all, for no one could keep all the demands of the law. But Zion is open to everyone who is willing to take advantage of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, the unapproachable God becomes approachable. I mean, this, this is beautiful. He is the mediator of a new covenant, a new kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. Sinai was covered in clouds. Zion was, was, was filled with light. Sinai was symbolic of judgment and death, but Zion is symbolic of life and forgiveness. The message at Sinai was stand back. The message of Calvary has come near. Notice again verses 28 and 29. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You know, there was fire at Sinai. There will also be fire at the final judgment, a consuming fire. But the two mountains are symbolic of the two covenants of God. We first come to Mount Sinai as a reminder of our sinfulness, and then we come to Mount Calvary or Zion as a reminder of God's grace. So I invite you tonight to come. If you have a need, if there's something that we can help you with, if you're ready, like Leah, to put on Christ in baptism, come. The invitation is there. No longer do we have to stand back under a new covenant. We come close and we have intimacy and fellowship with God. But you cannot come into the presence of God alone. You have to come with a mediator. You come with an atoning sacrifice. You come with Jesus. So come now as we stand and as we sing.